Life in Canada is more expensive than ever. Inflation has increased the cost of goods and services. Housing prices continue to soar. And yet our government refuses to reduce spending or take any kind of responsibility for this looming economic storm. What can Canadians do to protect themselves? I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So you know that I was critical of the Conservative Party of Canada debate last week. I thought it was a terrible format, really boring. They didn't really get into the issues that I personally care about. But there was one interesting and explosive moment in the debate when the candidates began slamming and piling on frontrunner Pierre Polyev for his position against the Bank of Canada and for supporting cryptocurrency. It, it seems like there was sort of a generational divide on the stage where everyone was opposed to Pierre talking about cryptocurrency, but they were also really taking his position out of context and pretending as though he had, had advised Canadians to put all of their savings in crypto, which I, I don't think uh, Mr. Polyev ever did, but it, it does raise an interesting question about the role of inflation, uh, the flooding of the money supply, printing obscene amounts of money from the Bank of Canada, the government, uh, the Trudeau government spending up a storm, uh, burying the country into $1.2 trillion worth of debt. And, and it's, it is worth having a, a, a bigger conversation to unpack um, some of these issues. So we spent yesterday's podcast speaking to Matt Spoke. Matt is a tech entrepreneur and writer in Toronto, and he's very enthusiastic and optimistic about the crypto space. And he, 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 much like Pierre Polyev, uh, is excited about the potential and the idea of freeing money from the claws of government. So if you haven't listened to that podcast already, I encourage you to go and check it out. But I also think it's fair to criticize Pierre for... Uh, you know, perhaps being too enthusiastic about uh, Bitcoin, especially given what's happened in the last week or so, which is that uh, Bitcoin has lost a substantial amount of its price. It's collapsed, um, which shows the vulnerability and lack of stability when it comes to decentralized currencies. The reality is, though, that the market is taking a hit across the board. And so, you know, you've seen tech stops plummet. You've seen the Nasdaq down. S&P, I think, is down 10% so far this year. We're definitely into correction territories in the markets. And many analysts predict that we are entering a recession. And so to Pierre's credit, at least he's talking about the important issues of the day that are facing Canadians, pocketbook issues, the cost of living, cost of housing, um, the, the impact of inflation, talking about the cost of gasoline and, and these issues. It's, it's really important. And I wanted to, again, talk, talk more in depth about the economy and what Canadians can do to protect themselves. And so I'm very, very pleased today to be joined by Michael Campbell. Michael is a top business analyst, a successful entrepreneur, business owner, and investor in the manufacturing, tech, entertainment, and real estate space. He is the host of a very popular long-running radio show out in Vancouver called Money Talks. Money Talks is now a podcast about finance, money, and investment in the economy. He's also a senior business analyst for BCTV News over on Global. He's based in Vancouver, and he prides himself on bringing Canadians the finest independent financial thinking. I was a I was incredibly pleased to be a guest on Michael's podcast over the weekend, and so he is returning the favor by joining my podcast today. So, Michael, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it is my pleasure. I mean, there's so much going on that are impacting us directly, whether it's somebody all of a sudden discovers economics, finance, international affairs are impacting them when they just simply go fill up at the pump. But it's across the board, and I think you outlined it very well there, saying uh, this is a phenomenal challenge. 
uh, for individuals and their own just sort of cost of living. It, it's the number one issue you read in, in uh, you get poll results, that kind of thing. Number one in the States, it's having a huge impact, I think, going forward to their midterm elections. No, it's a big deal. No one should underestimate it's a big deal. Well, and, and what we sort of saw that, you know, the, the criticism I would have against the candidates that were critiquing Pierre Paul, look, it's totally fair to say, look, Pierre, you shouldn't uh, criticize Bank of Canada or, uh, you know, you shouldn't sell people on crypto as if it's some magic way to hedge against inflation. Um, but but at least Pierre's talking about these issues. And no, he never told everyone to, to, to you know, sell off their house and put all the proceeds in, into crypto. He's just talking about it as an, another alternative and, and a place where you might want to uh, part part of your investments. But I'm, I'm wondering if just off the start before we, we talk about, you know, the, the, the precarious situation in the economy, if you could just comment on what you thought about uh, Pierre Polyev and his, his uh, criticisms against the Bank of Canada? Well, first of all, the attraction of something like a cryptocurrency is because uh, people don't trust government. That's the number one issue facing, you know, it's global. It's an overriding uh, theme that I use to then drill down and to say what's really happening. Because if you don't have confidence in the system, there's a real problem. And I think that's underestimated, actually. And I'll give you a quick example. If I said to you, Candace, hey, look, do you want a five-year government bond? By the way, it pays 83%. You hey, 83% every year in a five-year? Oh, little problem. It's Argentina. Well, you don't trust the Argentinian government. You know, I could go Turkey and say 24% five-year bond. They get to those levels because people don't trust government. That's been the attraction in the whole cryptocurrency uh, space, you know, led by Bitcoin, that it's not centralized finance or it's not, you know, under the rule. And we got an example in the truckers convoy. We've had an example with the sanctions on Russia where all of a sudden, uh, you know, some people in Canada had their bank accounts frozen. We couldn't do that if they held it. Uh, in Bitcoin, for example, because there's no central place you go. You don't go to the Bank of Montreal. You don't go to the Toronto Dominion Bank and say, freeze these accounts. There's no equivalent there. Uh, and the same when they came in and they made the sanctions against Russia's central bank and presto, all of a sudden they don't have access to the gold that they've got held outside of Russia. This is the politicization, the weaponization of bank accounts has serious long-term implications because someone's sitting there going, wait a second, I'm not sure if I trust, if I run afoul of the government, it doesn't matter if you're sympathetic or not sympathetic. The message was, if you run afoul of government, internationally or domestically, you may have a problem. That money may actually not be yours, but you can't do that with decentralized. So that's where the attraction came. And then the second side is kind of interesting because for a lot of people, it's not either or. It's not cryptocurrencies or housing. No, some of them are the, the product of the same thing, which is we're worried about the devaluation of the purchasing power of our currency. So we're looking for other things. So, you know, when they flush the system with money, all of a sudden you've got people going, I'll buy stocks, I'll buy baseball collectibles. We just had a record art piece, you know, that famous Andy Warhol, Marilyn Monroe piece. And it went for 192.5 million US sold in four minutes. Well, that's someone who's got another store of wealth. They're saying, I don't want the paper. I got to do something other than this paper called dollars. And so I'm choosing other things. So that's another huge dynamic in the investment markets over the last couple of years. It was definitely interesting. My husband's really into this space as well. And he, he got interested in NFTs and, and Ethereum and, and just, again, the same concept, trying to, uh, you know, find find new and unique ways to to invest money because, you know, you look at the at the economic situation out there and it, it is looking uh, pretty bleak. I, I did want to just ask you uh, one question about the Bank of Canada because 
I know that there's been a lot of sort of ink spilt in the, uh, you know, pages of our establishment uh, legacy newspapers, criticizing Pierre, saying how dare he criticize the uh, Bank of Canada for their role. Um, you know, they're independent from the Trudeau government and, and they shouldn't be brought into the fray of politics. So I wonder if you'd help us understand whether the Bank of Canada bears some blame for the inflation that is happening, uh, the, the rising cost of living. And, and, and if you could uh, give us your thoughts on, on whether you think Pierre's criticisms are valid or whether you agree that you think they're offside. Uh, and there's a lot there in what you're asking. And I'm smiling because, uh, you know, careful asking me a question, I might answer it and might take a week and a half. But uh, let's go back. And <laughs> this is like frightening words coming out of my mouth. Let's go back to September 16th, 2019 the overnight credit marks, but this is key to understand. At the time I called it the uh, event of the year that wasn't getting reported. So what happened is, remember, if you're gonna borrow money, you've gotta have somebody lend it to you. And you know, the government can't control who lends it to you. They can't say, you know, Candace, you must lend Air Canada X amount of dollars at this rate. So it's a free market. There's an overnight market very quickly, you know, short-term lending. You know, one corporation knows that they're going to have a cash crunch. Maybe it's a payroll coming. So they borrow maybe for one day or two days or a week or something. Well, what happened is nobody wanted to lend. September 16th that night, nobody wanted to lend. They have uh, other concerns. I think at the time they were worried about what was inside of Deutsche Bank, you know, in Europe, but they didn't want to lend. So you're the borrower. You got to have money. So you go, well, what if I pay you 4%? Nope. What if I pay the equivalent of 6% annually? And you say, nope. How about 8%? I'm not lending it to you. Then you said 10%, done. That's what the overnight interest rate did. It went from 2% to borrow to 10% to borrow in a matter of hours because nobody wants to lend. So what happened? The Federal Reserve said, well, we can't have this. Obviously, you've broken the system, the credit system. And so they stepped in. And they said, oh, I know, we'll be the lender. We'll be the ones and we'll do it back at 2%. Well, let's keep going. So that was September 219. Then you get into, uh, you know, the, the lockdowns, uh, the problems in March of 2020. The pandemic was growing there. Same problem. The level of uncertainty was such that people didn't want to lend money. I mean, would you want to lend money to a cruise ship line when there's a lockdown or an airline when there's a lockdown or even to government? What's going to happen to government? You know, my gosh, the economy's being locked down. They're not going to get the tax revenues. So people wanted to hold their money. Or if I am going to lend it to you, I want more. I don't, I'm not going to lend it to you at 2%. I need 6, 8, 10%. Well, again, the central bank said no. So they stepped in. They guaranteed, um, basically guaranteed mortgages. That's why all of a sudden mortgage rates dropped because the risk went out of them and they started to lend the government money. I, I mean, I'm not going to get into the mechanism, but basically they're saying, we will give you the money. We will create the money and we will give it to you, Bank, uh, Government of Canada, at 1% for 10 years, whatever it was, record lows. So that's the role they played. And they continued doing it in Bank of Canada, continued doing that right through into November of 21. Then they said, we're, we're not going to increase that amount. They bought a, about $400 billion or so of government bonds. Otherwise, our government wouldn't have had the money. You know, I mean, it was sort of ironic when the prime minister said during the uh, 2021 campaign, I don't think about monetary policy. And I'm going, well, goodness gracious, that's interest rates. Who do you think provided you the money to do CERB, to do 
whatever it was, the subsidies for small businesses, you name the program, the hundreds of billions of dollars, who provided the money? It was the Central Bank of Canada, uh, again, through a mechanism, but bottom line is they created the money, ended up with government, you know, floated uh, four or 500, actually 576 billion in bonds over two years. That was the Bank of Canada. That's who provided the money. That's the role they played. And it started with their worry that we had an absolute uh, problem in the credit market, like it was dysfunctional. And you can't have a dysfunctional credit market when you've got a world full of uh, credit, that you've got five, you know, the record amount of uh, loans out there, record amount of borrowing and debt out there. You can't do it that way. So that's sort of the dynamic. And now you already regret asking me that. I can see that. But uh, well, that, that's no. the Canada played. Without them, they were worried the system comes to a halt. No lending takes place, but we have a system built on lending and borrowing. So it would come to a halt. They stepped in. Government of Canada couldn't be borrowing at 6 or 8% or whatever would have ended up if they went to an individual or a mutual fund or a pension fund. They're the ones that kept interest rates to the record low. Government got the money and the government started to spend. Well, well, I appreciate you breaking that all down for us because I sort of vaguely remember the the, the the news that you were talking about in late 2019. Uh, couldn't have been, uh, you know, a more precarious time given what we experienced in the in the following four months. But I do remember I had Pierre Polyev as a guest on my podcast. We did a very long interview where he was also you know very concerned back then about about the inflationary impact of of those kinds of decisions and. You were also right to bring up Trudeau's comment about not thinking about monetary policy because here we are, uh, what, uh, a year later, and we're in this in incredibly, you know, loomy system, uh, loomy situation where, where it seems like we are heading towards a, a recession. We have a prime minister that doesn't care or think about it and, uh, you know, media that don't hold him accountable for it. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, at this point, do you think that we are heading into a recession? What, uh, what role did Justin Trudeau and, and, and his spending uh, have in that? And what's the best thing that the government can do at this point um, to help protect Canadians against what could be you know, really, really dark times ahead financially? Well, let's talk about uh, how you get inflation. And as Milton Friedman, you know, maybe the most famous economist of the last hundred years, uh, but said, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So when we're flushing the system with money, the key was, yes, the Bank of Canada created the money, lent it to the, central, uh, to the, the federal government, then the federal government started to spend. And it wasn't pandemic relief only. In fact, the majority of that money went to people who were not impacted financially. Everyone's impacted socially, et cetera. It may, maybe health-wise too, tragically. But they were not impacted financially. And well, that's why we have record savings rates all of a sudden. I mean, we, we had these stories of, not stories, the facts of 40,000 grade nine students got CERB payments. Like, are you kidding me? 40,000, yeah, they are not the breadwinner. And if you recall back in May of 2020, we had the Canada Revenue Agency come and said, we're suspecting a lot of fraud here. And the government said, no, don't worry about that. That's not our goal. They were pushing money into the system. And I mean, depending on which political party you support, uh, have various attitudes about how much debt we should be taking on. But we know that we took on this monstrous amount. We had the parliamentary budget officer just two weeks ago tell us it was about $576 billion, of which $204 billion were not pandemic-related spending. I mean, it was just flushing money out. And it's that amount of money that created this record savings. All of a sudden, the economy opens up. 
people have pent up demand, whether it's for travel or whether it's they were going to do a reno or whatever they were going to do, presto, prices go up because it's taking place right at the same time as we've got some supply shortages, which also play a part. But at all, the foundation of that was if, if everyone was broke, it wouldn't matter that we didn't have supply because we wouldn't be buying anything anyways. You know, the lowest people on the income scale are not causing inflation. They don't have the money to spend, you know. So we flush the money across the board. I mean, one of the stats uh, coming out of the government programs was that only 14 cents went to the low of every dollar went to the lowest income group, the lowest 20% of income earners. And we had out in British Columbia, in British Columbia, there was a great example where you had the premier, uh, John Horgan, uh, stand up and say, if you make 125,000 in your family or less, we're going to send you a grand. 125,000 to break. It wasn't if you got impacted by the pandemic, if you lost financially by the pandemic, if you're at the lower income rate. No, it was anybody at 125 grand in a family, it's a family income, got $1,000. And I'm going, you know, uh, and, and that didn't include, by the way, something we always make a mistake in the broad media of not including remuneration being benefits. So let's say I've got make 125 grand. I've got an extra enhanced medical plan. I've got an enhanced pension plan. So I could have been making 125 grand and 20 more in benefits and still got a thousand cent to me. That's how you get inflation. That's the well, essence. It's not Bank of Canada. It's I mean, they, they have a part to play for sure. I'm not saying that, but the real cause is the indiscriminate sending out of money. Well, it was going to go somewhere. And as I say, one of the measures was record savings account. So yeah, we've got inflation. Then you compound it uh, two ways, but first with, yeah, supply shortages on some things, but that's still not the essence because the essence for me is not the CPI number. It's what am I paying for food? What am I paying for energy? What am I paying for my housing? You know, rents or whatever. I can't avoid those. I don't have to buy furniture next week or clothing next week. So that doesn't compute in my personal cost of living. It doesn't have to. Uh, so presto, all of a sudden. Uh, so yes, we had supply shortages, but that wasn't why we got higher energy prices. You know, that and that was a killer. That's not why uh, on Money Talks, we were talking about uh, the supply shortage, or the, rather the commodity boom in February of 220. That's how obvious it was. We hadn't invested anything in oil, anything in copper or nickel, you know, in seven years. Well, as soon as demand picks up, you got a problem. And then you exacerbate it with other, I mean, it's the most direct line you can draw through government policies around the world and what we're doing with energy. It's like horrendous. That's the killer. So that's what Canadians are dealing with is they just can't avoid that energy price increase or that food price increase or that rents have gone up dramatically across our country, well above the CPI rate you know, in Canada. So yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And it's not easy. Right. And well, there's so many, and, and you, everywhere you look, there's, you know, something else to be concerned about. One of the things that I'm constantly concerned about, Michael, is there's this, uh, there's, con there, there's a survey that comes out every few months that talks about um, Canadians. This, this one's done by Ipsos. Um, but how many Canadians uh, are within $200 of not being able to make their ends meet. So so people who don't have any kind of emergency savings, people who just basically live paycheck to paycheck. According to the latest Ipsos service, it, survey, it's, it's now 49% of the country. So, so we're talking about, you know, we're not just talking about working class Canadians or people, again, who make minimum wage. We're talking about a big, big swath of the middle class who, who just don't have 
any money saved. They they don't have the ability to, to absorb a big price shock or or to, you know. And, and so so you look at this 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 number. Forty nine percent don't have uh, savings of more than two hundred dollars uh, each month. And, and then and then you know you juxtapose that with the incredibly quickly rising um, inflationary numbers. I think they were at seven or eight percent. Um, you know, the, the cost of gasoline. I know you're out in British Columbia. I think you, you've seen gas numbers of over over two dollars a liter, which, uh, you know, when I got my driver's license, I think gas was uh, 49 cents a liter. Um, and, uh, you know, that was that was a long time ago now, 20 years. But uh, still, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of living is is going up dramatically. Uh, how, how is this going to impact Canadians? And what advice? I know part of what you do on your show is you give financial advice to Canadians. Uh, what, what advice do you have to people who are, you know, getting ready to absorb the uh, big price gains that have, have come and are continuing to come? Just a couple of things on that. And uh, let's come back to so much of this is direct relation to government policy. And it's not just, yes, it is the flushing the system with money. That's one thing. But when you look at energy policy, for example, seven years of underinvestment. I mean, who in their right mind would say, I'm going to invest $10 billion in a, in a refinery? Because the problem actually, I can come back to this, is a refinery problem first. You know, oil prices are up 70%. Uh, but my goodness, look at the refining product. We don't have the capacity. But who would build a refinery anyways? We got 18 in Canada, haven't built one in 30 years. Why would we? But why would you drill for oil in a country and, and, and this is consistent, it's not just Canada, it's the US, it's uh, throughout Europe, when they're telling you, we wanna put an end to your, your product, we don't want your product. When there's protests that meet any kind of decision to expand oil production, despite the fact that the existing production continues to drop. It's just a natural sort of phenomena or a natural part is the well doesn't produce as much, it ages out. We weren't even keeping up to what we needed. This is huge. You know, did we not think that emerging markets wouldn't all of a sudden decide they need energy to raise the lifestyle, the life, you know, um, standard of living for their people? I mean, it's it, it was an inevitable. This isn't one where you go, gee, that's an unintended consequence. No, that's one with anybody who got a C minus in first year economics would have understood. You cannot restrict supply. You have discouraged anyone from drilling uh, and now you have demand picking up, emerging market demand, obviously pandemics ending, you know, put, put a lot of people back in uh, demand. The list is a long one. So presto, you get these high energy prices. They were inevitable and they continue to be. Well, it's it's because we have ideology and ideologues, uh, you know, governing our, our policies. Clear, they don't they don't like energy, they don't like oil and gas, and, and so they you know have these punitive bills, C sixty nine, which recently got um, struck down by an Alberta superior court. Uh, basically, said you know you can't build a, a, a energy project like a pipeline unless you you know do this sociological study on the gender impact in the communities. I mean, who who would sign up to? <laughs> to, to build a project, you know, whether it's LNG or, or refineries or anything, when, when you have to jump through these ideological hoops, I, I, th I think you're right. It's not unintended. It's, it's perfectly intended. But anyway, I, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'll let you continue. No, no, that's, that's it's a great point. And, and we're paying for it. So, I mean, and I don't think people should sit there and go, yes, you can get dips. If we cause a recession, I'll come back to your question on that in a second. But if we cause a recession, obviously demand will go down. Industrial demand will go down for energy. So, yeah, you can get a dip in prices, but we have a structural problem. Like, for example, you know, when uh, the, the prices started to really grab the headlines, I mean, it started well before this, but they started the headlines uh, politically 
in say February and we had Joe Biden going to Venezuela, you know, his people going to Venezuela begging for more production. Like, are you kidding me? They went to OPEC, OPEC Plus saying, please increase your production. Well, here's a little fact about OPEC. Their last month, eight out of 10 producers in OPEC Plus couldn't even meet their existing quotas. It's just not so simple. You don't have a switch you can flick. You know, oh, just produce more. Well, first of all, why would they? Where's the capital investment going to come? Where's the expertise? I mean, the, the industry has shrunk in terms of expertise in, uh, across the board. And then back to the other thing I mentioned, we have a refining problem. Like none of us buy crude oil. That's always a shock to people. I say, you look at the crude price, but you've never bought any, you know. You bought gasoline, you bought diesel or impacted by diesel, maybe protein, home heating oil, jet fuel when we fly. All of that is a manufactured product. Well, you need refineries to take crude oil and manufacture those various products we make from petroleum. Uh, we don't have enough refineries. We don't build refineries. What? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick in as much as uh, 5 to 15 billion, have uh, sort of a seven, eight, nine year lifespan. Oh, but we're cutting out oil, so we really won't need you in, in you know, Greta Thunberg told me we didn't need you next Wednesday. But uh, let alone 2030 or 35, the numbers they start throwing out, it... it it's just so fundamental. Nobody would invest in that stuff when you've told them you're not going to be able to sell your product in whatever time frame. And certainly they were talking 2030, 2035. That's not long enough to recoup. I can't even get the darn thing open by 2030. You know, so we're just living this result. It's structural. We've got a problem. We better get used to paying more. Um, people are aware of gasoline. They're not near uh, as aware of diesel, which is at all time highs now. Diesel's used in farming equipment. Oh, good. More food price increases. You know, used in freight, in trucking, the list goes on. And uh, yeah, I, I guess my message is it's going to impact all of us. And it's a direct result of government policy globally. Uh, you know, the green revolution was unrealistic to say we can replace the fossil fuel grid with uh, renewable energy in three years or five years or 10 years. I mean, we, there was nothing to support that claim. And there's so much wrong with it. I mean, I could just go on and on that it was just fundamentally incorrect. And that's what we're living, though. That's what we're living is that kind of price increase. So, uh, you know me, I can keep going, but I, I do want to not go over your, or miss your question about recession. This is the big deal here. you got the central banks going, the only thing we can do, we can't change supply of oil or energy. We can't change, I think, the food dynamics. We can't change any goods shortages. Uh, China's lockdown's just opening up now, but that create more uh, shortage. What we can do is uh, make people not buy stuff by raising interest rates. They were on the, you know, when they had record low rates, they were part of the problem and pushing money in the system. That's why housing went up. I mean, that was the number one thing. Give me a one and a half percent five-year mortgage. I'm a buyer, you know, mm -hmm. and I was an investor because the rates were so low. They want to make those higher, so it discourages us from demand. That's the only weapon they have. Here's the problem. So how high would rates have to get? Mortgage rates have gone up significantly, you know, say 16, 18 months ago, say they're about 1.7. Now we're over 4% for a five-year fixed. You know, 1.7 going back a year and a half, four, over 4%, first time since 2010. Will that choke off the housing market? Will enough people say it's not, no longer affordable? I'm out of here. That's what they're looking at on the economy as a whole. Obviously, housing is very important to our economy, but it's on the whole. What interest rates do we have to move them to? Where do we have to push them to, to choke off the economy and cause a recession? They don't want to cause a recession. 
Think about this. This is the, the dilemma they're in. If I cause a recession, presto, government revenues go down. Oh, but they've got record debts to service and interest rates for government have gone up. I can't have a recession. That's the dilemma and the big, you know, they always talk, we're going to have a soft landing or the probability is a soft landing. Well, good luck with that. It's not a dial. It's not some little fixed thing that they turn like the temperature in my room. No, uh, they've missed it all the way up. Keep in mind, our central banks told us we had transitory inflation right through December of this past year. And I'm going, well, the Roman Empire was transitory too. Good luck with that. You know, we have structural problems. And so they've got a lot wrong. And now they're telling us, don't worry, we're going to get inflation back down to 2% uh, in, three, in two to three years. And I'm going, yeah, what's the pain along the way? So this is the dilemma. There's no magic formula here. How much, how high do rates have to get to choke the economy down to recession? So we'll have to see. Well, it's so interesting, Michael, because you, you kind of pick on up on two two different areas where we have these sort of expert class of technocrats who act like they can simply change behavior, like you said, by turning a dial. Like, oh, we can we can solve global warming or climate change. We can we can change the Earth's temperature on a dial. All we have to do is completely redesign the energy system, and, you know, from scratch. And lo and behold, it just doesn't work, and we're all paying for that now. And I and I get the same sense when I'm reading, you know, my financial updates and and, and financial news. It's like which is a delicate balance between, you know, interest rates and inflation and the unemployment rate. And, and, and again, acting like there's these central planners that have all of the information and all of the knowledge needed to, uh, you know, manage a very, very complex economy. And, and I can't help but wondering and thinking, you know, this is, this is the, the problem in our society is that you have these experts and these elites who, who, who treat everything like it's a blank slate and they can just design it perfectly uh, with, with, without really being in touch with the concerns and demands of everyday people. I think this is why we see so many populist uprisings and things like the trucker convoy because people are fed up with these experts and elites looking down their nose telling them what to do uh, without really understanding their, their situation. And so I, I, I wonder, because I, I know I... I, I um, we've been talking about this a little bit, but you give financial advice to families. Um, you know, that statistic I mentioned earlier, about 49% of Canadians are within $200 of being unable to pay their monthly bills. Like what can, what can everyday Canadians do at this point? What, what's, what's your advice to like a young family that's looking to buy a house or a young family looking to save up uh, or, you know, just manage to get through whatever it is that we're about to get through? Uh, what, what, what advice would you give to them? It's difficult because, first of all, it's if somebody is a low income, that's who gets impacted. We knew that, <clears throat> excuse me, going in, and as we were alluding to earlier, that level of what's considered, uh, you know, full impact of the inflation in a difficult way, changing your lifestyle, has moved way up the income scale. Now we're about half of Canadians are impacted in a way that is changing their lives. It's really tough for them because it, the, the structural problems that we've got are, are real. We're, keep in mind, even a year from now, if oil, say oil's at, let's make an easy number for us, $100 today. And that's way up, obviously, uh, from sort of the $60 range, just going back four or five months and way more than a year ago. But a year from now, let's say oil's at uh, $115. Well, the inflation will be reported as $5 increase on the 110 you know, that it's, it's, it's compared to the previous year. So when we get all these lofty prices, inflation rate will probably go down. We're not going to keep going up at 40% a year on something, you know, so they're really stuck in, in this. Um, the one thing they're also measuring, and I wish I want people to understand this. 
What you're measuring is those paper things called dollars don't buy you as much. That's what we're really measuring. Inevitable consequence. When you produce a lot of something, usually the price goes down. So we produced, you know, hundreds of uh, billions of dollars. No wonder the value of them, the purchasing power went down. And that's what's happened. So their money doesn't buy as much. And, uh, you know, we were chatting uh, before where I'm just saying it's really interesting revelation for people that we say, hey, the Canadian dollar is 78 cents against the U.S. dollar. I'm going, who cares? I don't eat U.S. dollars. I I don't live in a U.S. dollar. That's not the relevant measure of your currency. It's what it can buy. And we know it's going to buy a heck of a lot less food coming up in the next year. You know, it's, uh, you know, if you're wanting to buy lumber for a deck, you know, you're building, whatever it is, it doesn't buy as much stuff. And so if you're just at that 200, you know, like you're breaking even, and that's a significant number. When someone says I'm within, you know, inflation rates at 6%, keep in mind what that actually means to people. It means if you're the average Canadian, you probably have to spend about $4,000 more for the same stuff you bought a year ago, if that keeps going at that, say, 6% rate. And then, wait a second, that's after-tax dollars. So I got to make like 5500 bucks, pay 1500 in income tax. Oh, now I've got that 4000 left over. That's the challenge. And there's no easy way, easy, there's no way out, actually. People's lifestyles are going to change. When you have extra money, you know, so you're an investor, my advice has been since February 2020, buy commodities, buy stuff. Why? Because, and, and you can see, it's been a, a great call, by the way. It's just, that's the way it is. Because it's the stuff that's, that's getting, compared to our dollars, getting worth more and more and more. And I still believe that. Uh, I'm still a big fan of oil uh, as an investment, Canadian oil, because we still undervalue it. But it's, it's not just that. If we're going to do the EV revolution, and I believe we are politically, well, you need a lot more copper. I mean, we're not in the ballpark. Of, and I saw the Globe and Mail just put in an article a day or two ago, and I was laughing. I said, I've been talking about this for two years. Where's your lithium? Where's your cobalt? Where's your copper? Where's your nickel? You know, that's how you get electric vehicles. You need lithium for batteries, you know, or wind turbines. We're not, we're not even in the ballpark of discussing how do you increase the production? How do we obtain those minerals and metals? And, uh, yeah, it's so I still like the switch into those material things to protect my purchasing power of the dollar. And I'll give you one last example, just to, I'm not, I don't want to confuse people. Let's say you were lucky to have $10,000 and you had it two years ago. Would you rather have 10,000 worth of oil starting two years ago or 10,000 worth of dollars start two years ago? Be way better ahead with oil. And well, enough. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, I mean, to, to your point, you know, you're, you're making a salary and, you know, you, you don't get a raise necessarily every year. And all of a sudden your salary last year is, is worth, to your point, $15,000 less or $12,000 less because of the cost of living increases and, and taxes. And there is a, a great irony, Michael, in the fact that we have a political class and an environmentalist class uh, that, that, that sits and rails against energy and oil, Canadian oil. Um, and yet when the oil price goes up, 
you know, Justin Trudeau benefits because he gets more revenue, and uh, you know we have Alberta balancing its budgets because because of that. So uh, you know that the the the, the rising commodity prices uh, does help the government, helps investors as well. And and just a final point, you know the environmentalist movement doesn't like Canadian oil sands. What, what do they think about all the mining of all the chemicals that you just mentioned that are necessary to support their you know wor- the worshipped uh, electric vehicles and, and wind turbines? Is something that they never never seem to want to talk about or address, but it's it's an obvious contradiction and a bit of a hypocrisy from my perspective. And a fundamental contradiction. I agree with you. And I've said, why is it so difficult for people who support renewable energy, have a great concern on climate change? Fair enough. Why is it so difficult for them to acknowledge that that means by fact that you need a lot more and these uh, raw materials to actually produce that? I mean, I have no idea why they cannot bring themselves. And that's why we've had, come on, we've been talking uh, climate change 20 years, saying renewable, what, more, 20 plus, and we still don't have any plan whatsoever to actually get it done. That's like the guy you know who says, I'm building a mansion. I'm building a heck of a house. And you keep saying, well, where are you going to get the materials? Oh, well, I'm building a mansion. I'm building a house. You know, there's never a- a- any response to that. And, uh, and that's why the EV revolution continues to be delayed. You know, and if that's your thing, you should be mad about that. If that's your, if climate change is your thing, you should be angry that we have no plans to actually institute it. You know, the odd electric vehicle or giving a $5,000 rebate isn't the challenge if you're going to impact climate change. It is this massive amount of raw materials. And where's the energy coming? Oh, fossil fuels. Diesel is going to power those machines to create the wood termite or to mine. And we just haven't had a mature conversation about it and we're starting to live the results in higher prices. That's just one example of the lack of mature conversation on that subject. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. We produced a mini documentary here at True North, uh, I guess it was two years ago now, called Green Hypocrisy. And one of the episodes was dedicated entirely to trying to understand the supply chain and the production of an electric vehicle, where it comes from, the mining activities, all that kind of thing. And, and you know, you look at sort of a, a holistic uh, carbon footprint of producing one of these things versus the lifetime of a, of, of, of a regular vehicle. And, and, and you know, it's... It's not clear that one of them is, is better or worse from the environment. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because it's in a, certainly an important conversation uh, to have. One more thing here, because it's one of my things. And I appreciate people have different priorities. Mine is I don't like starving people to death. And it's something I've been talking about. The simple relationship between the price of natural gas and two of the components that are used for fertilizer, ammonia and urea. So when natural gas prices went to the roof as a direct result of government policy, people didn't make that connection. That meant fertilizer prices went. Fertilizer prices are are more than double in the last year because the components of of that, right, nitrogen-based, there's also potash too, uh, but, you know, huge amount of the supply of fertilizer is impacted the price of ammonia. And I get the impression they didn't even know that. Like literally, it's so superficial that we had leaders putting in policies that guaranteed higher natural gas prices, which we are living right now. And this is well before Ukraine. I mean, we're talking in September, some bright people were writing about the food crisis. I'm talking head of fertilizer plants saying energy prices were so high in September, October, we're cutting back production. Guess what happens? Emerging markets don't use as much fertilizer when you've just doubled the cost, if they can get a hold of some. We are gonna have lower crop yields, and literally, starvation is in the playbook right now. 193 million people in the world are on the edge 
of starvation. You know, they're that little precipice. We're pushing them over. What killed me is that we have decision makers, I don't think, who knew that fundamental, you know, relationship between natural gas prices and, you know, fertilizer. Because I can't believe they sat there and said, I got a way to get those fertilizer prices up. We can really crush some people. So yes, we're going to get higher food prices. Diesel uh, increase is also impacting that because that's how you run your equipment on a farm. Uh, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. And it all comes back to that same stuff. Well, it's un unconscionable that that's happening. And we do see the odd reports here and there about food, food shortages that it's hard to wrap your head around that living in North America and this sort of land of abundance. But you're absolutely right to point that out. It's incredibly bleak. And again, our leaders need to be held much more accountable for the decisions that they make. Well, Michael Campbell, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. I was so pleased to be invited to join your podcast. I've been listening to you on the radio for a very long time. My dad listens re regularly as well. And uh, you've been a staple in our household. So it's it's an honor for you to join the show, and I hope I hope that you'll come back and uh, we can continue to, to break down some of these big, big uh, issues. So I really appreciate your time, Michael Campbell. He is the host of Money Talks, and uh, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. These are important subjects. They're impacting us directly to bring to people's attention. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.